This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Michelle Tang. This episode marks a gear change here at Farms Food Future as we're dropping two episodes a month, every month moving forward. Double the bubble ain't no trouble for our production team here in Rome and across the world as we want to share more stories fresh from the farm. And in episode 52, it's time to put your swimsuit on and dive into tackling the impact of climate change on ocean and marine life. But first, Satu Santala, Associate Vice President for External Relations and Governance, will be joining us to speak on IFAD's 13th replenishment, which is how IFAD meets the need of small-scale farmers in developing countries. This investment in rural communities transforms every dollar pledged into $6, impacting 90 million people across 100 countries to build a better, more sustainable world for all. Then in episode 52, we'll be exploring sustainable practices for marine ecosystems. And our first question is, how do we support smallholder farmers in marine biodiversity preservation? EFAT specialist on fisheries and aquaculture, Richard Abila, will walk us through sustainable ocean farming and the delicate balance required for food security. He'll be joined by Mahusia Sokli to speak on the crucial role of mangroves in climate resilience under EFAT's Coastal Community Development Project in Indonesia. Then we'll visit IFAD's Inclusive Blue Economy Project in Haiti. It's actively preserving marine biodiversity and contributing to ecological stability in the face of economic challenges. Paolo Silveri, country director in Haiti, speaks about the strategic partnerships needed to ensure conservation. He's joined by project specialist Audrey Chaundi to tell us about the challenges and opportunities in engaging in marine biodiversity in Haiti. And finally, stay tuned to hear all about harmful farming practices affecting oceans and how oyster farming can contribute to climate change mitigation. We'll be talking to Martina O'Brien, a freelance ecologist based in Dublin, Ireland. Don't forget, we want to hear from you, what you think about our stories and who you want us to be talking to. So please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifad.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform. And please don't forget to rate us. Coming up, time to find out about IFAD's 13th replenishment with IFAD's Satu Santala, Associate Vice President for External Relations and Governance. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. IFAD 13 is a chance to invest in rural communities, combating global crises. With four in five of the world's poorest people in rural areas, IFAD is committed to investing for resilience, peace, and prosperity. Satu Santala, IFAD's Associate Vice President, brings extensive experience in promoting development and resource mobilization, having overseen relations with IFAD's 177 member states. She joined our reporter, Kira Rainsby, to speak on IFAD 13. 
Welcome, Satu. Welcome to episode 52 of Farms Food Future. I just wanted to ask you, what has been the reaction of donors to EFAD and the work that it does? Thanks, Kieran, and great to be here and to talk about our replenishment. So the reaction of our member states throughout the consultation for our replenishment has been really supportive, recognizing that in this global situation where we are facing all these challenges for, for global food security and resilient and, and sustainable food systems, IFAD has a really key role to play. We've been encouraged to do more of what we do best and really bring that value to our member states and the rural communities that we do so well. We've also been very strongly supported in the three priority areas that have been uh, agreed for EFAD 13. So those are a strengthened focus on, on fragility and situations with fragility in our program countries. Secondly, climate change, obviously, because when we talk about rural development and, and agriculture, climate is really a big issue in that context. And then thirdly, the private sector and engaging with the private sector. So so we've really been very strongly supported in what we do, and we're very happy how the discussions have gone. So how has this translated in terms of EFAT 13 then? Well, it has really translated in a strong support from our member states. So across our membership, we have received very strong financial support in addition to the support to the thematic areas, but we are really well on our way to reach our goal of $2 billion for our replenishment. We're achieving this in a very difficult time when many countries have a lot of pressures on their spendings. And I'm really proud of the fact that we also have a large number of countries who benefit from IFAD's resources who also contribute and have made pledges. So this really has translated into very strong support. And that was EFAD's Satu Santala speaking to our reporter Kiara. Next up, we dive right into marine conservation with EFAD experts Richard Abila and Mahusi Asokli. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Michelle Tang. Safeguarding marine biodiversity isn't just crucial, it's a potential solution in combating climate change. Not only does this apply to ocean life, but also to inland waterways such as mangroves that help tackle these impacts. After the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, over 97% of mangroves in the Nicobar Islands were eradicated. It was the first time that mangroves were restored on a large scale as a coastal defence to ensure the environmental safety of local populations. IFAD has had several projects, including the Coastal Community Development Project in Indonesia, where there was a large restoration of mangroves on several of the islands. This project also contributed to the overall reduction in poverty and enhanced economic growth for coastal and small island communities. We'll hear more about this project in a moment. To begin the journey into the depths of our ocean... EFAD's Richard Abila brings over 25 years of expertise in fisheries and aquaculture. Our reporter Kiara Rainsby spoke to him and EFAD's Mahusi Asokle, who supports EFAD's biodiversity strategy. Stay tuned to hear from Richard and Mahusi about the impact of climate change on ocean life and the critical role of safeguarding marine ecosystems to fight it. 
Thank you, Richard. We're very happy to have you on this episode of Farms Food Future. Thank you very much. Now, there are several pathways in which climate change affects the health and sustainability of oceans. Now, the first area is in terms of temperature increase. As temperature increases, it affects coral reefs, aquatic life. And the second area is in terms of sea level rise, which is directly connected with temperature increase. And this also has an effect, for instance, where fish breeds causes some of the areas to be exposed. Now, thirdly, is the effect of climate change through acidification. As climate increases, it has an increase in CO2. Now, if this is absorbed in the oceans, which leads to increase in acidification, and this will connect with that also as CO2 rises, then we have also got a decrease in oxygen content in parts of the ocean, which has an effect on aquatic life. So when we look at um, various uh, pathways, those have quite an impact on oceans and aquatic life. So what impact have you seen from various EFAD projects on the interaction between marine life and coastal communities? And what can be learned from this interaction? In the last few years, EFAD has invested with programs in the coastal areas in some communities. Now, part of this is increasing adaptation of the communities to be able to withstand climate change effects. For instance, we have had programs to respond against the last cycle of tsunami. In more recent cases, we have had projects addressing some of the effects of cyclones in parts of Mozambique. This has helped, you know, the communities to be able to address this through developing livelihoods that are more sustainable, diversifying the opportunities for coastal communities beyond just fisheries, doing a lot, for instance, in the infrastructures that can withstand climate change effects such as cyclones and heavy storms, also increasing green infrastructure infrastructure, for instance, planting mangroves in countries like Eritrea and Indonesia. In some cases, the projects have aimed at increasing opportunities how to use some of these investments, for instance, producing honey in mangroves. Now, we have seen that these have, to a large extent, have helped you know, the communities to become more sustainable and be able to withstand the effects of climate change, especially in these coastal areas. So, in this context, why are mangroves crucial for fighting climate change and supporting agriculture? And how does their conservation benefit the environment and local communities? First of all, mangroves are very important for absorption of carbon. In areas that you have large mangrove forests, they have very dense root systems that are able to trap and store carbon for a long time. In some areas, we also see the benefits in terms of the barriers that they provide against storms, cyclones, coastal erosion. But more importantly is the mangroves on sustaining biodiversity. Mangroves tend to be areas that can allow fish and other aquatic life to breed and protect the growing life, as well as habitats for birds. So improving mangroves groups provide uh, these benefits, but also, more importantly, for in some of our programs, for instance, in Eritrea, that some of them, the mangroves are also used to sustain livelihoods, providing certain socioeconomic benefits. For instance, communities are able to produce high-quality honey in some of the mangroves, but also, in, in some cases, certain rare species that they use for medicines and things like that. So, to a large extent, mangroves provide both the climate mitigation benefits, the ecological benefits around protecting aquatic species, but also these socioeconomic benefits. Thank you, Richard. 
Now, Mahusi joins us also to talk specifically about mangrove conservation in Indonesia under the Coastal Community Development Project. So welcome, Mahusi. How did preserving mangroves contribute to the goals and objectives of IFAD's CCDP project? Through this project, an innovative income-generating activity was implementing and sustained environmental protection, including mangrove. The project had a significant impact on food security. The percentage of households experiencing hungry season decreased almost to zero, improving coastal ecosystems through the mangrove, will support climate change mitigation and adaptation, will support biodiversity conservation, and then support resilient food system and improve communities' nutrition. And how did the partnership between local communities and IFAD's CCDP project enhance the success of mangrove conservation efforts? Through this project, we saw that local knowledge of mangrove species and sustainable traditional practices was promoted. And also community engagement and empowerment through education and training programs by increasing ownership and local commitment was also enhanced. Partnership between local communities also contributed to developing community-based conservation initiatives. For example, local communities participated in activities such as mangrove restoration, ecotourism, and surveillance of sea protection areas. And we also realized partnership with local communities could also contribute to income-generating activities. Thank you, Mahusi. Now back to you, Richard. So can we farm the ocean sustainably without harming the ecosystem, especially in rural areas? And how do we ensure food security and production without disrupting the ocean's delicate harmony? It is actually quite possible that we can use the ocean as well as the aquatic ecosystem for sustainable livelihoods without damaging those ecosystems. First is how the ecological functioning of the ecosystem to understand what conditions are required to sustain biodiversity. When we develop our programs, some of the key things that we need to ensure that we are also monitoring the effects of what we do. So, for instance, in fisheries, as we have to incorporate uh, stock assessment and monitoring the production and the fish stocks that we use. Now, secondly, we have to ensure that uh, what we do are quite consistent with the capacity of the environment to sustain our activities. So we have to ensure that the harvesting levels are kept within the sustainable limits that the environment can sustain. Thirdly, is ensuring that the approaches we use are sustainable. So, for instance, in fisheries, we have various options in terms of the technologies that we use the fishing net, that all these have an impact and a direction on sustainability of the ecosystem. Now, fourth is also ensuring that we protect the environment. So one of them is, of course, planting mangrove around some of the critical areas to ensure that it provides the protection for the new fishes. So the bottom line is that as we use resources, we must ensure that our methods are sustainable and that uh, we keep within sustainable limits and also that we protect the environment against any harm full anthropogenic activities and we give back to the environment in terms of all the intervention to improve our ecosystems. Our next episode is all about seaweed. So we wanted to ask you, is seaweed farming truly eco-friendly? Are there any notable results from EFAD's projects on seaweed farming? 
Seaweed is an interesting part in the ocean ecosystem. Even without farming it, seaweed is a natural occurring mass of land resource that actually exists over 500 million years and beyond. And this has had quite an important effect, especially on mitigating climate change, particularly in terms of sequestration of carbon. Various analysis shows that seaweed can absorb much more oxygen than terrestrial forests. Of course, it also has its importance in terms of habitat for marine life and also in terms of removing toxins from seawater. And of course, over time, human beings have been able to utilize seaweed in various ways to get the maximum socioeconomic benefits, even as they protect it. We are now in a situation where now we see the potential to actually try to farm seaweed and using it to make various products. Some of these are edible products, some are medicinal products, some are things like lotion, soap. We also find opportunities to use seaweed, for instance, in uh, animal feeds, fish feed. So it, you can call it, you know, a, a super plant. Thanks to Richard and Mahusi. Coming up next, let's find out how IFAD is putting this into action in Haiti with the Inclusive Blue Economy Project. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Michelle Tang with Brian Thompson. We're joined by Paolo Silveri to discuss strategic partnerships for Haiti and marine biodiversity. Paolo is also joined by Audrey Chundi Kamnang, a technical specialist in fisheries and aquaculture. Let's hear from them and our reporter Kira on the partnerships, opportunities and challenges that the Inclusive Blue Economy Project envisions for rural livelihoods and the preservation of marine life. Welcome, Paolo. Thank you. Uh, good day to all. Thank you for uh, inquiring about this project. Haiti is a fragile state on the border of conflict. It is a country where half of the population is food insecure. It's centered on three main objectives. Uh, the first one is to promote the inclusive, sustainable and climate adapted management of natural resources, such as coastal and marine resources. And this is the objective where uh, the Inclusive Blue Economy Project is centered. These objectives include community conservation and restoration action for natural resources, as well as inclusive governance systems linked to devolution. This provides the strategic framework to the Inclusive Blue Economy Project and is crucial to Haiti's sustainable development. And can you share insights into the partnerships forged to enhance the project's impact and sustainability? It basically focuses on the environmental side, on the re-establishment of mangroves and, uh, and natural habitats, including the definition of development plan for the protected area of the three bays. In terms of partnership, I would highlight the decentralized management. So there is a center that manages the finance of the project within the Ministry of Economic and Finance, but the technical unit of implementation is in Fort Liberté. It involves both the departmental team of the Ministry of Agriculture and the DDM, so the departmental team of the Ministry of Environment. So it also leads to institutional cooperation between two ministries that historically have been competing with each other for attention and resources. It also involves public-private partnerships because uh, it engages the FOPROBIN, which is the foundation for uh, the protection of biomarine areas. 
And then this particular interesting feature of coupling natural resource management and conservation and rehabilitation of a protected area with food production and food security and nutrition. So a project that provides options not to have to choose between environmental conservation and food security, but actually to develop both at the same time. Thank you, Paolo. Now moving on to Audrey. What challenges and opportunities have you observed from this project, particularly in the context of Haiti's unique circumstances? Haiti is a very difficult context. So we have this fragile socioeconomic context where we have the control of access routes by armed groups and the closure of the borders, which is hampering the movement of goods and services. Also, the drain of the qualified professional. So we have this young and talented professional that we are hiring, but because of the security context, we notice an increase in the immigration of this qualified professional. Despite the difficult context, we have the opportunity to organize an implementation support mission. The aim of this mission was really to lay the essential foundation for the project to be able to implement its activity effectively. And finally, could you share any lessons learned from the project's implementation and how they contribute to future endeavors in marine biodiversity and the blue economy? What we are doing is really to use the lesson learned from the past project. We have, for instance, the partnership. What we notice is that previous project in IET really guaranteed the sustainability and effectiveness of the project. For instance, we have this project where IFAD collaborated with the Islamic Development Bank on the agricultural and agroforestry technological innovation project. So partnerships could be forged with also private players who have acquired skills and expertise in the region. So for instance, in the Inclusive Blue Economy project, we are seeking right now to collaborate with agency who have expertise in fishing law revision, for instance, or even collaborating with the diaspora for mangrove preservation. So within this project, we have a targeting strategy. It will be in terms of running sensors of the produce organization to be targeted, including the categories targeted for nutrition and social inclusion. And the mapping will be used to assess the women and young people participating in this produce organization. Also, it is important to introduce alternative livelihood for fishing communities. For instance, for this project, we have the beekeeping activities, but we also have an activities related to the rice industry production. So we also have some other lessons coming from IFAD project in the region. For instance, we have this project called Program to Reduce Vulnerability in Coastal Fishing Areas, which was carried out in Djibouti. And this particular project applies on the development of payment for environmental services for fishermen, notably to finance mangrove restoration work. So this service will be implemented as part of the mitigation measures against unregulated fishing practices. Thank you, Paolo and Audrey, for your insights. Tune in for episode 53, which drops in two weeks, or the second Monday of February, as we explore the incredible power of seaweed. Yes, we're racking up the output. There's just so much to say. And make sure you also check out our other podcasts. In Podcast 49, we shifted the focus to rural women and women leaders in agriculture. Then in Podcast 50, we celebrated being together for 50 Farms Food Future episodes, featuring some of our favourite Farms Food Future interviews of all time. 
And in Podcast 51, we brought you all the clues on what lead organisations on the front lines of the battle against climate change are focusing on in 2024. Now we welcome our next guest, Martina O'Brien, a freelance ecologist based in Dublin. You're listening to Podcast 52 of Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. As a freelance ecologist, Martina O'Brien has focused her research on managing non-native invasive species in aquaculture. She has previously worked with the Irish Sea Fisheries Board, looking at how to farm and process seafood more sustainably. More recently, Martina managed to have invasive species recognized as one of the five key drivers of biodiversity loss globally. She joins Kira Rainsby to talk the impact on farming and invasive species on aquaculture, such as oysters, and its effects on climate change. In terms of detrimental practices, I think it's like looking at things like the scale of farming. So promoting smallholder farms is great because in a way that's kind of naturally sustainable. But when it's just kind of, I suppose, striking a balance so how can we sustainably use our marine base? So there's the Marine Spatial Planning Directive and looking at how do we kind of promote farming without scaling up to a point that's completely unsustainable. On a smaller scale, things like the use of plastic oyster bags and there's these rubber ties that attach to oyster trestles, which are the structures that allow oysters to kind of sit off the seabed so that they can feed and not be covered in sand. And then in terms of seaweed, farming, I think, can be very sustainably done. But I suppose harvesting of seaweeds on a large scale as well can have detrimental impacts, I think. Because when you think about harvesting very large amounts of seaweed, those seaweeds can provide ecosystem benefits and they can provide habitats for a whole host and range of species. And they can also have ameliorative effects to things like storm waves coming in that it can actually take the energy out of. In terms of regenerative, I think in Ireland, I know that there has been some work done to restore our native oyster populations. So predominantly we farm Pacific oysters, which are actually a non-native species. But we also have Austria edulis, which is a native species. And I think some populations are actually restoring naturally and have some of those benefits like taking the energy out of storm waves coming in and providing different types of substrates and habitats for marine species. So you've done extensive research on oyster farming. In what ways can oyster farming be sustainable? Farming in general provides a really important role in feeding the world. And I think oyster or aquaculture farming, you always hear about how good and important a source of protein it is. And it can be a really sustainable option. But I think it's, again, about just looking at what scale it can be done at in a sustainable way. 
So a lot of my work has focused on invasive species. And these are species that come from other countries, not native to here. So, for example, species that I focused on was an invasive sea squirt called Didemnum vexillum. Invasive species are a key threat to sustainability and to marine biodiversity. There's a pathway that links invasive species to Ireland. So we import a lot of oyster seeds. So they're the small juvenile oysters that we get. And then we grow them up into adult oysters and ready to sell to markets. So that key pathway, I think it's acknowledging that represents a key threat to marine biodiversity, but that we can actually put measures in place to reduce the risk of introducing invasive species. So we can have biosecurity measures like checking for invasive species or treating oyster seed with fresh water in order to reduce the risk of introducing marine creatures on juvenile oysters. There are going to be impacts, but there's steps that we can take to mitigate against them. Finally, what harm has climate change done to oysters? And how does farming a specific species like oysters help tackle and mitigate the effects of climate change? The impacts of climate change on oysters include things like ocean acidification. So that can have impacts on oyster shells. It can make them more brittle. If you talk to any oyster farmer, they'll tell you that that has a big impact because part of the farming method is to turn oyster bags because oysters tend to grow into each other if they're just left to grow without being moved at all. So the shells can kind of grow into each other. So you have to give them a bit of a a jostling every now and again to make sure that they don't grow into each other. But that kind of type of handling can cause mortality in oysters. There's also kind of the obvious impacts of climate change is that we've got increased temperatures for marine life that can have all types of impacts because some species can have temperature cues that it can kind of induce reproductions. So if you've got kind of alterations or an inconsistency in climate patterns and temperature patterns, you can get changes in how the oyster is actually going to grow and the types of the meat that you get in oysters. So whether it's different kind of quality meat, different levels of meat in the oysters, and that can have impact for the sale of the oysters as well. Thank you to Martina and to our reporter, Kira. And that brings us to the end of episode 52. Thanks as always to our producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti, and to our reporters, Rosa Gonzalez and Chiara Rainsby. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to episode 52 of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Join us from the second Monday in February as we unveil the power of seaweed. And we'll be back again just two weeks later at the end of February to give you the latest on IFAD's governing council and the importance of nutritious school meals for a healthy life. And remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at efat.org and send us your voice or text messages to this address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson... And from me, Michelle Tang, and the team here at EFAD, 
Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.